The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. The Center for Autism and Related Disorders advises working with a board-certified behavior analyst who has experience with autism before starting any intensive behavioral intervention. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Welcome to Autism Live. I'm Shannon Penrod. We're webcasting to you live from the Center for Autism and Related Disorders headquarters in Tarzana, California. We've got a really exciting day for you. Now, normally at this point, I say to you that we're going to be live with you for the next two hours. There's a little bit of an exception. There's an asterisk today uh, that Dr. Doreen Grampache is not with us live today because she's in Washington, D.C. on very important business, and we're thrilled that she's there. We need her to be there today. Uh, but we talked about it yesterday. Or last week, excuse me, with her. And so many of you have written in asking questions about anxiety, how we deal with that with individuals who are on the autism spectrum. And we'd mentioned that there was a two-part show that Dr. Grampache did with us last fall talking just about anxiety. Now, in, the, in segment one of the show, she talked specifically about the, the criteria for a diagnosis and what it means and separates. And I encourage you to watch that part. But in the second part, she really started to deal with viewers' questions and the nuts and bolts of what it means to be treating uh, autism when there are anxiety issues, and usually that's that's a very common thing. So we're going to show that to you during this hour. Then in the next hour, there's Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. We are going to be live during that hour. We have some really remarkable guests. We're going to be talking about a special conference that's coming up called Love and Autism, and our special guest is going to be Jenny Palmiotto. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist. And then we're also scheduled to have with us Dr. Jim Ball. He is going to be joining us via the live conference happening in Indianapolis uh, that is for the Autism Society of America. We're really thrilled to have an opportunity to talk with both of them. And we've got some really important stories in the news to cover as well. But first, take a look. This is Dr. Doreen Grampache, The Anxiety Show, Part 2. I'm going to just go through today and you know try to fit as much as I can in one okay. hour. I know that last time we got into a little bit of discussion about different aspects of anxiety and the DSM and uh, we were not able to really get to the core of it, which is some of the treatments and things that we can do for our kids. So today I'm going to try to go a little bit faster perhaps and go over some of the basic details um, and then talk more about treatment. Great. 
Sounds Go right good. ahead. It sounds wonderful. And so if I've, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to start, and for those people who did attend and watch the November 27th show, uh, forgive us if it's going to be a little bit of uh, uh, repeat material. We, we love a refresher. Okay. Refresher's always good. So we're going to talk about anxiety and OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, and how they are, they have overlaps or comorbidities within, with our uh, field of ASD or autism spectrum disorders. So uh, we're going to talk very briefly about how we can identify anxiety in ourselves because I sort of want to make sure that uh, the listeners are able to um, identify what anxiety actually is and some of the symptoms. And if you get good at identifying it in yourself, then it helps you very much to identify in your children, especially our children, because our children, of course, have a very hard time expressing it when they have anxiety. So, and we'll review what is anxiety, what is OCD, and what are some of the uh, signs of anxiety and OCD that we see in, in ASD and autism. And then uh, there just I'll throw out some ways that we've used in the past to assess anxiety in our kids, and we'll talk more about treatments. Great. Okay, so we talked about the definition of anxiety, and again, for our viewers, this presentation in its entirety will be up on uh, the Act Today uh, website, the CARD website, the Autism Live website, so that people can access it freely. Absolutely. And possibly even the video might go up as well so that people can see this. Okay, so anxiety is really a normal reaction to stress, and it does, uh, a certain level of anxiety is important. If we had no anxiety, nobody would leave their house, and you'd just stay in bed and not care about anything, right? So a certain amount of anxiety makes us functional, and so that's kind of important to know. Um, it helps us deal with difficult situations, and often when you look at people who are good high performers on examinations, for instance, those are people who have a mild level of anxiety and not the people who have no anxiety or high anxiety. So just so you know, a mild level of anxiety is a, is a healthy thing. Okay? Good. Good to know. <laughs> Now, when, when we look at ourselves, the things that we tend to call anxiety, and this was something I just uh, pulled a bunch of friends, and I said, when you feel anxious, how do you feel? What are some things? And these are the things they listed out for me, and it might not apply to everyone here, you know, listening, but, you know, here they are. I worry, I'm afraid, I don't sleep, I don't eat, I eat too much. I obsess about things, I have racing thoughts, I have heart palpitations, I have irritable bowel syndrome when I'm anxious, I feel dizzy. Mm -hmm. So people uh, feel anxiety differently, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, I think for me, I have racing thoughts and I don't sleep. Um, you know, other people have different levels of anxiety. How do you experience anxiety, uh, Shannon? I think I have everything on the list except don't eat. <laughs> okay, sadly. <laughs> sadly. Sadly, that's the one sadly. you want to have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> And then, and then if you think about how do I deal with anxiety when you have those symptoms, right? What do you do? And here's again, same group of friends. I distract myself or I keep myself busy. I talk to my friends. I gain reassurance. I pray. I take medications to help me. I exercise. I breathe. I, do med I meditate. I do yoga. I practice positive self-talk. I try to change my beliefs. I avoid what's making me anxious. I take drugs or alcohol or other addictions. I try to change what is causing me anxiety. Okay, so two points about this list. Some of these things are adaptive, mm -hmm. like 
you know, kudos to those people who actually exercise when they have anxiety. What a wonderful thing to do. Or meditate or do yoga. And then some of them are not so adaptive. They're not very, it's not a good idea to drink alcohol when you have anxiety. And the, the idea here is that people deal with anxiety in different ways. Sometimes if it's overwhelming, people, you might end up doing something not so good. And if you're able to, if you're, I guess if you've dealt with it more in your life and you get better at dealing with it, right? And the second point about this slide is that when you look at these things, you have to realize that our children don't know how to do most of these things. Our ki when kids experience anxiety, any child, they don't really know how to cope with it. They don't have these what we call coping mechanisms. Whether they're good or bad, kids don't know how to do any of these things yeah. usually. So they just, you know, go into the, uh, the previous slide, which is they just continue to worry. They just right. avoid. They just, you know, they do things that are... They just experience it all over and over. They don't know how to reduce the experience of anxiety. And that's important because that goes, takes us to treatment. Right? And absolutely. And I, and I feel like even already knowing that, it makes me so much more motivated to provide my child mm -hmm. with skills to be able to cope. Exactly. Because if I didn't have skills to cope, I, I, it would escalate. Exactly. And, exactly. I, and I would feel terrible allowing that to happen to my child. Right. And, you know, it's important to just, just the two slides that we went through. You, what I want our viewers to hear is, you know, you will sometimes see symptoms in your child and you won't relate it to anxiety. Mm. So, for instance, let's see, your child's not sleeping or not eating or obsessing about things. Yeah. Now, this is very important when we see those obsessions. For me, the number one thing is why does he want things to be a certain way? Why is he all of a sudden now concerned about things being perfect? Mm -hmm. Those types of things are clear indications of anxiety. And before I start, as I, as I start to try to teach my child not to you know, line things up or not to insist on things being perfect, I also want to teach him some coping mechanisms. Absolutely. So there's two sides to it. So this is just kind of like, let's let our viewers think these things through. Sure. Okay. Now, as behaviorists, the way that we, we have to remember, and I'll go back to what the behavioral concept of any behavior is, or is that everything we do is to get something good or avoid something bad. Remember, that's what I always say, right? Mm -hmm. Feeling anxious is obviously something bad. It's not a good feeling. So sometimes what we do is we avoid all situations that cause anxiety, right? Like this is examples of this are not wanting to go to school. Maybe some of our kids don't want to go to school because they're anxious in that environment. They don't want to go to a party where there's a ton of noise because the noise level makes them feel anxious because it's too intrusive. They don't really want to go to social situations because they're not good at being social. Mm -hmm. These are just examples. And if you can't avoid the situation that's making you anxious, then you tend to do things that will help you cope. Some of the things you do to cope are good, and some of the things you do to cope are not so good. They're all coping strategies. Even if you, so let's say something that is good, a good way of coping is in a, let's say they force you to go to, here, here's a good example. If people don't realize, the, the number one thing, public speaking is a huge anxiety provoking situation for most people. So let's say I force someone who doesn't like public speaking to go into the public speaking situation, mm -hmm. and boy, they 
they start showing all symptoms of anxiety, they're nervous, their hands are shaking, they're sweating, all that sort of stuff, but I force them to do it. Now they're going to start to cope. Now some people will cope in a way that's adaptive. So, you know, prior to going, they'll practice a lot, they'll breathe, they'll know, you know, they'll start to push their thoughts, their anxiety thoughts away and so on. Other people will do things that are not adaptive. They'll have a tantrum. Mm -hmm. they, they will, you know, uh, refuse or throw things away, you know, around or whatever, they'll, they'll put up a fight, you know. Mm -hmm. So coping mechanisms are good and bad. Okay. Okay. With all these coping strategies, what are we trying to gain? Now, when we do coping strategies, we're trying to avoid or reduce anxiety. We're trying to find other things that are rewarding so that they replace the anxiety. Mm -hmm. That's why we eat, right? Overeat or, mm -hmm. or drink alcohol or whatever. We're trying to yeah. reduce the anxiety by replacing it with something else. We try to gain better understanding of what is causing us anxiety and we want to change our perceptions and beliefs because anxiety altogether is just something we believe, right? People who go, I mean, there's some people that are very, very comfortable with public speaking. I don't, I have, I have no anxiety about public speaking, but other people who find public speaking to be extremely anxiety provoking. So if one child finds the social situation uh, to be anxiety provoking and another doesn't, it doesn't mean that our child who's anxious is doing anything wrong. People are different. Their skill set is different. Mm -hmm. The very, very first time that I spoke in front of a thousand people, I was pretty anxious, you know, and I rehearsed my talk maybe 20 times. Mm -hmm. Now I will go and do a talk with absolutely no rehearsal and, you know, I'll just talk yeah. to the audience. So practice or knowing content or knowing what we're doing helps us reduce anxiety. And that is really important when it comes to our kids because our kids have learned the language recently. They have learned social skills recently. And all of these skills are new to them. So yeah. when we force them into situations where we feel they shouldn't really be anxious, we're wrong. They have every right to be anxious. We're asking them, our kids should be anxious every single time they get into a conversation because it's brand new to them. But that's not a reason to not have them do it. Oh, absolutely. You just want, you keep, you just, you will continue to place them in those situations. But as we go on and you'll see, there's a lot of things you can do to gradually fade the child in, to give the child other forms of support, to make the situation more palatable so that the child doesn't go to high level, horrible skill, other coping mechanisms that are not good. Okay. We tend to do drastic things when we're placed under a lot of pressure all at once. Yes. And if we are gradually exposed to things, then we tend to cope better and have okay. more healthy coping strategies. Because yeah, I sort of see it as uh, the avalanche, that the child has exactly. some anxiety, and, we, and maybe we don't even realize it's anxiety, but we take them to a birthday party and they have the meltdown because exactly. of the anxiety. And then the next time the birthday party comes up, the child is showing reticence and then we have anxiety about it because we don't want to go through the thing. And so it just becomes this mushroom cloud. Right. Absolutely. Very good example. And if in that scenario, if the child had a little bit, had been prepared a little bit more for the event, the whole thing would have been more successful. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just a matter of preparing ourselves a little bit better and 
perhaps reducing the exposure to a gradual exposure. You know, when you have a situation like taking a child to a party and they're, they, A, they don't have the skill for it, skill set, or B, the noise level is too high and it's bothering them, or C, they're not allowed to even reduce their own anxiety by eating a lot of the foods because the foods are restricted. So right. There's a lot of stuff that goes on. <laughs> yeah. When you're doing that, you know, you're flooding. That's a procedure called flooding, and you're basically exposing the child to multiple aversive stimuli all at once okay. versus shaping you know, or a graduated type of, you know, procedure where you're not really placing the child in a horrible situation, you're just gradually increasing. Well, I'll give some examples. Okay, great. So, did I go through the slides? Yes. So, if our children with, now this is going on to talk just briefly about how difficult it is for us to even see anxiety in our kids and to identify it. And again, remember there's, I think it might come up in this, in this presentation, but in autism, because it's such a pervasive disorder, people tend to, it, it overshadows everything else. We've talked in the past about like, so many of our kids have gastrointestinal issues and you know, the doctor will tell them something like, oh, that's just, a lot of kids with autism have GI issues, which means nothing, yeah. you know, or, and, and we just tend to then ignore those issues. And the same thing with anxiety. A lot of our kids have anxiety. That doesn't mean we have to ignore it. Right. It's not one of the symptoms of autism. It's one of the side effects of just not having enough communication ability and having too much intrusion and not being able to fit in and so on. So then you feel anxious. But I think that's why this conversation is so important because I think a lot of us have help, felt helpless mm -hmm. about our child's anxiety. Right. Like, and, is there something we can do? Oh, is totally. there a strategy? Absolutely. And that's why I'm so thrilled that you're talking Absolutely. about this. Absolutely. And that's the thing, you know, in, in, when we put it into, this, into the back bucket of autism, then we feel like, oh, that's pretty scary, mm -hmm. right? And I just mm -hmm. can't deal with this. But it's because the bucket of autism is so just thin and like nobody knows how to deal with this huge thing in there, it you know? It's mysterious. Mysterious, It still exactly. has this air of mystery. Exactly. We, you know, the doctors act that way like, well. Oh, nobody knows know. how to do it. Right. Yeah, right. Well, anxiety is anxiety and there's been for hundreds of years ways to treat anxiety and okay. you can, you'll see that some of these treatments will be very effective for yes. us. Okay, awesome. So, you know, if our kids had anxiety, would we even know it? How would they show us? It's very important for us to see this. What ways do they have to cope? And what techniques do they know to calm themselves? Mm -hmm. And can we help reduce what causes them anxiety to begin with? So it's one thing to say they're anxious, let's teach them coping mechanisms, which we will. But the other thing is, Remember, everything, you want to change consequences and antecedents. Can we actually reduce some of the stuff around them so that their anxiety level is low to begin with? Okay. okay. So there's many ways to think about it. Okay. Our goal is to recognize anxiety in our kids, help them recognize what makes them anxious, because you're not always going to be there. Right. So you want your child to be able to realize, okay, I'm going to be anxious. I'm, I, the reason my heart feels this way is that I'm experiencing anxiety. This is what I need to do. <clears throat> help find good coping strategies. Mm -hmm. Help feel, help them feel confident enough to approach situations that they feel anxious about. Help them overcome their anxiety overall and then help them find ways to reward themselves, right? Because you want your child to be independently able to push themselves. My son, he gets very anxious about memorizing new academic information, which is really interesting. Like if it's, 
last time we were practicing French and he was saying, I just can't get this stuff, I have horrible memory. Which is fascinating because he's an actor, he loves acting yeah. and he memorizes books of script, books, like literally, you know, way beyond my memory. <laughs> and what he doesn't realize is memory is memory. Right. It's just that he knows he will be successful memorizing script, but he feels he will be, he will fail at memorizing French. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's sort of an interesting thing. And it, the main thing is to teach our kids, okay, I, this is how I go about coping with this. I'm going to introduce myself to this scenario gradually. Because as long as someone else is pushing you, you're going to have resistance. Yeah. So it's important to teach our kids to approach it themselves. We went through this a little bit last time, now this slide, where we talked about the, the in DSM-4, anxiety had, uh, the anxiety disorders were defined this way, and there were, you know, it was panic disorder, separation anxiety, specific phobias or fears, social phobia, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, generalized anxiety. These were all classified on, in the chapter called anxiety in the, in the previous diagnostic manual. In the new manual, in DSM-5, it's a little bit different. They actually have added a whole section now, and what they've done is for anxiety disorders, they've uh, detailed it a little bit more. So we have separation anxiety, selective mutism, which we talked about, which is sort of kids where you will uh, essentially, in certain situations, you freeze and you don't speak, you don't right. talk. Specific phobias, again, social anxiety or social phobia, panic disorder, Agoraphobia, which is a, a very extreme level of anxiety, which prevents you—you you start to stay at home and don't don't want to leave your environment because you only find your own environment to be safe. Mm -hmm. Generalized anxiety, which is uh, you know anxiety in more than one situation. Mm -hmm. Substance or medication-induced anxiety, which essentially means—and this is actually a very good one that they've added because a lot of medications, like uh, medications for ADHD will tend to increase the heart palpitations mm. and sometimes you misunderstand that feeling and consider it to be anxiety. A lot of medications do that actually. Uh, anxiety disorder due to other medical conditions, like let's say if you are going through chemotherapy or something, you're going to feel pretty anxious mm -hmm. because you feel sick and going and you know just feeling nausea. Nausea is one of those feelings that people relate to anxiety a lot. Mm -hmm. So if other things cause you nausea, you're also going to start feeling anxious. It's funny. And then other specified anxiety and unspecified. So they've just kind of detailed it a little bit more, the anxiety disorders chapter. And they've added another... Um, they basically are defining the anxiety disorders as things that are disorders that share excessive fear, okay? And they're, dif they're, they're clarifying in the new diagnostic manual. We did, I think, talk about this a little yes. bit, mm -hmm. where they said that fear is the emotional response to real or perceived imminent threat. Mm -hmm. It could be real, it could be perceived. And anxiety is the anticipation of that threat, right? So I, in my mind, think that um, something really bad's going to happen, whether it's real or not, and then I feel anxious, apprehensive about it before it even happens, right? And that's anxiety. Anxiety is usually about real life events. Not necessarily, but usually. Your perception of the real life events could be completely wrong. Like a real life event would be going to school, and your perception of it would be 
all kids are going to make fun of me today, right? So your perception might be completely wrong, but it's still a real life event that could potentially happen. I like when people say fear stands for false evidence appearing real. Exactly, very, very good. That's an excellent way to put it. And then, and there's a huge overlap with OCD because OCD now they've put a new chapter called obsessive compulsive disorders they've separated it from anxiety mm -hmm. because they say that the fear that is in obsessive compulsive disorders is usually irrational the only separation then is okay so we have I'm going to school as a very real thing mm -hmm. I might have a uh, sort of a perception of going to school that's a little bit exaggerated like people will make fun of me or I might have the I might say oh um, you know uh, today something's gonna fall from the sky and hit me in the head and I'm gonna die today and that's a little bit more irrational mm -hmm. and if you go to kind of things that are a little bit more irrational then and it results in you doing irrational behaviors your behavior might become obsessive compulsive in nature and so they're trying to make a distinction between the type of fear that leads to just the generalized anxiety or an anxiety disorder and the type of fear that leads to OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder but I don't care let's ignore that for a minute because if you can see on this bullet there's about 76% of overlap in other words if you feel you have anxiety 76% of the people who have anxiety also develop obsessive compulsive disorders. 76% of people who have OCD is due to some form of anxiety. Wow. So it's a high, high overlap. I don't think they should have divided these two. And I think the reason, and as you recall, the SM4 did not divide them. They said OCD is a portion of anxiety, and I truly feel it is. The reason they uh, divided it is simply because they would have otherwise had about 20 different disorders on the same heading. Okay. So, you know, when we look now at the obsessive compulsive and related disorders, this is the new chapter, they, call, they say that these are characterized by the presence of obsessions and or compulsions. So you might have an anxiety, you might have anxiety about something, but not obsess. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's sort of a difference. If you are obsessing, then perhaps it has already turned into an OCD, an obsessive compulsive disorder. What are obsessions? Obsessions are recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or images in your head that are experienced as intrusive and unwanted. Remember in the first very, very first slides I said that my, one of my friends had said racing thoughts? Mm -hmm. That's what obsessions are. Obsessions are racing thoughts. They're like, and then they will make fun of me. And then what will happen? Oh my God, and then that'll be so embarrassing. I don't know how to handle that. And then the teacher won't stand up for me and then I'll have to run away and I'll, it'll be horrible. And yeah. it's just like, you know, turning things into, it's like a dream state. Yeah. Right? Often when we push away our obsessive thoughts, they come out as dreams. I call it going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. You just keep falling exactly and, right. and you keep seeing it's like Alice in Wonderland. She goes down the rabbit hole and it just gets worse and things get big and small and Exactly. And before <laughs> yeah. you know it, something that was going to school, something that was kind yeah. of benign has now turned into entering a concentration camp. Right. It's now turned into something horrible in your mind. And as a result, you tend to be become compulsive. Now this okay. is the compulsive portion of the OCDs, which is 
Compulsions are repetitive behaviors or mental acts mm -hmm. that an individual does or feels, feels driven to do in response to the obsession. So, you know, oh my God, they are going to torture me at school and now I will start to do certain meaningless, in some ways, repetitive behaviors that will keep me safe. So it's one thing if I like put up a tantrum and avoid going there, but it's another thing if uh, I have to make sure that my backpack is green because having a green backpack, backpack will save me or I have to check and make sure everything is perfect because if it's not, I'm going to fail. It's going to be disaster. One of my kids, uh, my daughter, when she was really little, was very much a perfectionist, perhaps my fault, at, um, in school. And she really wanted, she still is, you know, Mickey. <laughs> she still is, and she wanted everything to be, she wanted, like, straight A's, you know. She got uh -huh. a 4.0, by the way, at the uh, first, first semester, first quarter at college, yeah. And she is um, just, was that way when she was young, and it had to gradually become compulsive in her behaviors in terms of like the night before an exam she had to go through these specific rote rituals which had really nothing to do with tomorrow at all mm -hmm. and we often do these things how many people listening here or viewing this don't have a lucky something right right you have a lucky uh, rabbit's foot where on earth did we get that from right, right. <laughs> you know that's a that's a compulsion yeah. To have something that brings you, that you feel luck, you know, that brings yeah. you luck or those are compulsive types of things. It's, they are irrational. They make no sense whatsoever, yet they are mental acts. They give you some sense of security, right? Okay. And we often do a lot of repetitive behaviors or behaviors as a whole, like the people who have pure OCD washing their hands because mm -hmm. they feel that there's germs. And then and, and when you bring up repetitive behaviors, of course, this is part of our, our autism diagnosis. Which is exactly the, the, the slide okay, we're going to look we at go. right now. Great. Fabulous. And so, you know, again, for I'm trying to help people understand that OCD or obsessive compulsive disorders are really anxieties. And now we're going to look at the obsessive compulsive disorders. And I've specifically uh, highlighted in red the ones that I feel we very clearly see in our children in ASD. So these are the ones that are listed under the new chapter, right, under the OCDs. And remember, the OCDs as a whole used to be classified under anxiety, and we've already said they are 76% overlap with anxiety. This is all about anxiety. Yeah. The only difference is they tend to uh, turn into coping strategies that are strange, that are consist of repetitive behaviors and compulsions. Okay. OCD itself, obsessive compulsive disorder. This is you obsess, I think I go into them. So you obsess about a certain situation and then you do compulsions to try to reduce the obsession. Body dysmorphic disorder. We're not going to talk too much about body dysmorphic disorder. This is for people who develop eating disorders, for instance. You're very, very thin, but you still look at yourself and you think you have an obsession about being thin because you think you're fat, mm -hmm. and therefore you do repetitive either bulimia or anorexia or other things to, to make yourself feel better. Hoarding disorder. Hoarders, so people who will uh, gather things and keep them. That's a pure anxiety 
uh, related thing. Why do we collect things? Mm -hmm. We collect them because they make us feel safe. They, we, you feel protected. You feel like you're never uh, going to lose out in life because now you know. One day when you need that flashlight, you have. 500 of them yeah and and you hoard so much that you could never even really find the thing anymore and it becomes kind of just a protective layer of items materials and with our kids you often see hoarding in the beginning phases sometimes you'll have a child who even has a hoarding drawer like they have a place where they put all their stuff or they just uh, carry things in both hands you know or they have a blanket or they have an animal that they have to take with them or you know, certain things have to be a certain way, like they will insist on wearing certain clothes or not other clothes. And these are all, if you really start paying attention to it, these are forms of OCD. These are compulsive behaviors. Okay. Okay. Trichotillomania is, is uh, the obsessive compulsive behavior that some people have where you pull out hair, mm -hmm. you're anxious, and you get into the habit of pulling out your hair. Excoriation disorder is actually kind of interesting, and I've highlighted it here because excoriation is uh, people who have anxiety and they uh, pick their skin, mm. right? So a lot of people pick their skin. You see this in our kids quite a bit, actually. Okay. Some of our kids do this to a very, very extreme level where it becomes very dangerous. Substance or medication-induced OCRD, which is the obsessive compulsive related disorders, as I mentioned with our children, there are many medications you take. There's a form of niacin. You take mm -hmm. niacin, it's vitamin B. It's not a big deal, but it gives you a rush. Yeah. And it makes you your whole head hot for a few seconds. Yeah. And a lot of our kids will experience that as something that is anxiety-provoking. Okay. And of course, there's other specified types of this, and then there's body-focused repetitive behavior disorder, which is kind of an interesting one that they've listed here, and it really makes me think of our kids, because it is um, all of the hand flapping, body rocking, all of these types of things. Uh, it, it's funny, some people in general, when they're anxious, mm -hmm. they tend to do things like this. Or, yeah. you know, if you really think about it, people, you're anxious and you move your leg a yeah. lot, or tap, you know, or like if you just uh, are tapping your hand on the table, those types of things are called body-focused repetitive disorder. And if it gets to a point where it's disruptive, um, then it can be considered a disorder. Okay. I'm going to give a break in a second. Uh, no, do you want one now? I no, no. Okay. No, I, if it's okay, I want to yeah, keep, keep going for a few more minutes because I really want to fit as much as I can okay. in. Some of the commonalities are like cleaning or, you know, contamination disorders. A lot of people experience that, that something around me is dirty and therefore I have to clean obsessively. Here's one of the cool ones that they've listed now and I wanted to talk about is symmetry, an obsession with symmetry and repeating ordering. Obsession with symmetry means things have to be a certain way that is symmetrical, perfect. Nobody knows what that really is, but they have to be a certain way. And that is so many of our kids where things have to and that. Notice this has nothing, I'm not reviewing autism, I'm reviewing OCD, I'm right. reviewing anxiety. And these are symptoms of those disorders. So they're, you know, when you have a child who insists on things being symmetrical in a certain way, that's anxiety. It is an okay. indication that they're feeling anxiety. We're going to skip the other two because they don't really, they're not important to our uh, current discussion here. Mm -hmm. But what's important here is genetics. When you look at genetic uh, components of 
obsessive compulsive disorder, the rate of obsessive disorders or what's called obsessive compulsive and related disorders amongst first degree relatives is double the normal population. The rate of obsessive compulsive and related disorders amongst first degree relatives when the person with obsessive compulsive disorder was diagnosed as a child is 10 times the normal population. So in other words, if you are diagnosed as an adult to have obsessive compulsive behavior, the likelihood that your one of your immediate relatives, like your child, would have one is double. The normal population would have obsessive compulsive behavior as well. If you are diagnosed to have obsessive compulsive problems as a child, the likelihood that your child, when you're an adult, will have it as 10 times normal. So th there's a huge genetic component. And what this says to me is that as parents, we have a responsibility to get help for ourselves if we're having anxiety, and that if our children are having anxiety, that we need to get on top of that, or we're going to have grandchildren who have Yeah, and anxiety. you know, it's funny that it's, it's right now, of course, this often happens in, you know, these studies on genetics, they're done with groups of people, and they notice that, oh, if somebody was diagnosed with, with OCD as a child, they've grown up, and now, how many, you know, we're studying adults who were diagnosed when they were kids. But you can also think of it as, is this really genetics, or is it really environmental? If someone has OCD as a child, and they're not treated, it's very likely that they go through life with OCD, and their kids will have OCD. I had, I had a parent who used to come to the clinic, and she would have a mask over her face, and would only come in with a Lysol case, uh, can and w and her child was very very anxious because and the parents wouldn't let her child go to school because she was afraid that the child would bring germs home and infest the house with germs I mean our behaviors really impact our kids behaviors absolutely so this is very very important to pay attention to should we give you a break we'll let's take, take a, a break. break all right we're gonna take a break and we have some questions that have come in and hopefully we're gonna have time to get to some of them one in particular about helping older kids on the spectrum that are in that transition phase that are experiencing anxiety. So stick with us. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Ask Dr. Doreen. We're so thrilled that we have Dr. Doreen Grampache with us and she is doing for us the, the part two of the anxiety <laughs> show, which I think is going to have to go into part three eventually. But um, you, we, we, we should say that you are someone who has been dealing with autism. You're an expert with the field of autism. And, and I always like to remind everybody that you're a visionary in the field of autism. And so it's so wonderful to have somebody with your expertise you, taking this for us and, and putting it in terms that we can begin to understand so we can start to help ourselves and help our kids. Right. Well, I, thank you. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. But I really believe that a lot of our kids and adults experience anxiety and it's one of the things that really is ignored quite a bit. Absolutely. And so what I'm going to do now, because I do have a lot of slides, but a lot of questions that have come in have to do with just the treatment aspect of yes. it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to just tell you about the next slides and, and hopefully you will go in and look at this PowerPoint. And I think, Sharon, what we should do for this talk is I'll, at some point I'll schedule with Emily and do more of a two or three hour 
long video on just anxiety as a whole. So, you know, the next slide was going to talk about why would individuals with ASD have anxiety? And this is really important because, you know, if you just quickly take a glance at these things, are, are people, are, are kids and adults on ASD who have ASD experience a lot of things we don't experience? Like they don't sleep enough. Most of our kids don't get enough sleep. They don't, there's a lot of illness stuff. It's funny because if you go to a restaurant, if you get food poisoning mm -hmm. and you have a severe GI symptoms, the number one thing people with severe GI symptoms say they have is anxiety. It's, just, it's an ex identical feeling when you're throwing up and you have diarrhea and so on. It's an identical feeling to when you have severe anxiety. So it's a very, there's a huge overlap. And if you're, if a child has GI symptoms, they're going to feel anxious all the time. Sensory overload makes us anxious. Mm -hmm. And our kids, we know, have a lot of sensory overload. Being on medications, receiving treatments, like, you know, if you're going to get a, a, a methyl B12 shot every three days, you have increased anxiety. You know, I don't know how my kids would handle it if I told them you're going to get a shot every second day or every third yeah. day. Just imbalances in our neurotransmitters, which a lot of our kids have imbalances, uh, will cause anxiety. And there's a lot going on with our kids that increases their, their propensity to have high levels of anxiety. And the ways that they show it are they do have obsessive compulsive behaviors like lining up objects, which they're trying to control their environment. Yeah. Hoarding, which gives them a sense of safety. Body rocket, body rocking, which, by the way, body rocking is one that I like to talk about. This motion actually is one of the few motions that activates parasympathetic activity in the brain. So our, our, we have sympathetic activity and parasympathetic. Sympathetic is uh, when you are ready for, uh, you know, the fight or flight response, mm -hmm. and parasympathetic is the calming response. It's, it's your your body is reacting to a stressful situation and your parasympathetic activates in order to calm you down. This body rocking is one thing that you can do that will actually activate your parasympathetic, which is very interesting because our kids do that. It's almost like they're naturally trying to calm themselves. Yeah. Uh, this is why we have rocking chairs. Yeah. Rocking chairs produce calming effect because of activation of the parasympathetic. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, and signs of anxiety will, re will re uh, result in no sleep, in IBD or other GI issues, hives, mm -hmm. I will always check our kids, or in avoidance behaviors, like things like self-isolation, no eye contact, right? Okay. Social avoidance or self-symmetry behaviors, which are all repetitive and rote. I'm not going to talk about the research findings just because... Actually, the only thing I want to say about this slide, which is amazing, and I'll be very quick on this, is it's just a very spectacular slide. Okay. <laughs> Studies show that individuals with ASD experience greater levels of anxiety than community populations regardless of their age. Okay. All other community populations. Individuals with ASD show greater signs of anxiety than individuals within any other clinical group. Any. Okay. This is a good one. Individuals with ASD show similar levels of anxiety when compared to individuals with a diagnosis of clinical anxiety. The only other group they're similar to in their level of anxiety is people who have been diagnosed with anxiety. Okay. So ASD is definitely one of those that has high levels of anxiety in it. Okay. And of course, we talked a little bit about diagnostic overshadowing and reasons why it's very hard to assess. I've listed a few different assessment tools that might help our people. Uh, identify if I, but you know, I've already also mentioned a bunch of symptoms. If you see those symptoms, assume that it might be anxiety. Now, here's we're going to start talking. We have about 10 15 minutes to talk a little bit about treatment here. 
You know, when you talk about it from a behavioral perspective, remember we always want to look at the antecedents and the, and the consequence of things, right? So you can do an FBA, you can do a functional behavior assessment, and you can observe it and find out what's causing the child anxiety. So time for school, Joe tantrums, and then he gets sent home, right? A challenging behavior, like a tantrum, may be, begin because there's anxiety. So the antecedent, like time for school, is causing anxiety. And then it becomes learned due to the reinforcement. This is a really important thing. Most avoidance is learned. It's something that we imagine. So I want to avoid school because in my head there's something in about school that's causing fear, causing anxiety. Now I'm going to do a huge behavior like tantrum and then they send me home and great. Now my I realize that my tantruming behavior worked. Right? So any behavior that has an avoidance function has some level of anxiety in it. Is what I'm trying to say. You know, noisy environment, Tom lines up toys, right? And then Tom gets to avoid the environment because he's obsessed with his whole thing. Is it okay sometimes to let Tom avoid the social setting or is it better to help him cope? And those are the questions. You don't want to let, you don't want to reward the avoidance behavior because ultimately all of our kids have to be exposed to situations that are normal, like going to school. Mm -hmm. But there are many things you can do to help. Okay. So there are, first of all, the psychopharmacology treatments, which we don't want to ignore because they're hugely effective. Things like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, they're very helpful with this. The SNRIs, or serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. Um, there are many other drugs. Those two are the mildest. Of course, there are others like the benzos are a little bit heavier, but these are medications that have been used for the treatment of anxiety for many, many years, many, many years, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, they, they will reduce the anxiety feelings. Now, I'm not someone who's one way or another feel very strongly about the use of medications or not, but I will say that research shows that a combination of medication and cognitive behavioral therapy is the most successful. Okay. That is the way to go. So if your child has, or if you're if an adult you know, has very severe anxieties or obsessive behaviors, start with uh, looking at researching the medications for anxiety and the two top ones are uh, the most common, SSRIs and SNRIs, and you will see that they're pretty benign. They will just kind of take the edge off. They sort of help you, they, they modulate your neurotransmitters. I can't go into the biochemistry of it too much today, but they really do help people calm down a little bit. Okay. And that kind of helps us then work on other things or teach better, you know, and change behavior better. Keep in mind that there are other medications that help as well. So if your anxiety is coming from having GI symptoms, then take medication for the GI symptoms, you know. So GI meds will calm the GI issues and will help your anxiety as well. If you're having sleep deprivation, get medications that will help your sleep because lack of sleep leads to significant anxiety. Mm -hmm. I guarantee anyone, go, you know, put, set your alarm clock so you don't sleep for two nights, you'll be the most anxious wreck <laughs> that exists. And that's a lot of times what happens with our kids. Yes. We don't realize that they're experiencing anxiety simply because they don't sleep.
They wake up too often. Okay, so we have to take care of business, essentially. Exactly. If something's going on, we got to take care of that. Otherwise, we're really not going to be as successful taking care of the anxiety as yeah. we could be otherwise. Because if you're still not sleeping, I can give you 50 coping mechanisms for your anxiety when it happens, but you're still not sleeping. Right, right. And let's fix the underlying. Okay. Great. Then we get to therapy, cognitive behavior therapy. Cognitive behavior therapy's goal is to create new coping mechanisms or new coping templates. And you use behavioral techniques like modeling, exposure, and relaxation. Okay, and we're going to talk about each of those. So exposure, which is the main thing, of course, modeling, you know, that's, that's, I don't know if I go into modeling or not, but modeling, you know, most of the time what we're doing is we're modeling bad behavior for our kids, yeah. but it, because we ourselves become anxious. Yeah. But if you like, okay, so an example of this is if a, a parent has serious anxiety about, let's say, spiders, uh, guaranteed all kids in that family will fear spiders. Yeah. So if you are able to overcome some of your own anxieties, then you can model for your children. If you, if a parent goes and touches a spider that's not harmful, children won't be afraid either. They, we learn from our parents what to fear, or or from someone else. Right. If we see someone and scream and freak out, we will realize. Oh, Oh my god there must be something to be anxious about so don't model anxious behavior okay exposure this is the most critical treatment and it will help anyone with anxiety OCD any kind of phobia and it is a heavily used intervention we use it for so many different things it's called systematic desensitization remember when I said flooding is forcing the person to be exposed to the thing they don't like putting just throwing them into the anxiety situation Expo uh, systematic desensitization is, is sort of a way of doing that more gently there's three phases to systematic desensitization there's exposure to a hierarchy essentially what you do is you produce a hierarchy of things Things that are anxiety provoking. So let's say, um, you know, I don't know, going to a party is anxiety provoking for an individual, or and what you will do, or touching a. Let's look at serious OCD, like touching a particular object is dirty, and that is really I'm going to avoid that completely. So what I'll do is I will have a list of things that are the highest to the lowest anxiety provoking. So the lowest, I'll, throw, I'll use an example that applies to many parents, is like taking their child to a medical uh, type of intervention, whatever it may be, child's freaking out, tantruming, throwing fits and so on. So you sit with your, you produce a hierarchy for your child that starts with looking at a picture of a doctor's office. Maybe that's even too anxiety provoking. You go to the very lowest and you'll put 20 items in there, 20 pictures or 20 th steps. The, the highest would be actually going to see the doctor or the dentist and actually receiving the injection or Whatever the Whatever the thing that has the most fear, that's exactly. at the top of the list. That's okay. at the top and the lowest is the least. The second stage of uh, systematic desensitization is teaching your child some form of relaxation exercise. Now this could be anything, it could be Breathing, we do a lot of breathing with our kids where you just breathe and count. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be imagery, you like, so you will teach the child to think of their favorite place like on the beach and really do what mm -hmm. is, this is a, essentially medicate, uh, um, just going in your head and meditating for yeah. a while. And or it could be just uh, relaxation. Or self-talk or self -talk, all those things. Self-talk, lay down, drawing, mm -hmm. uh, listening to music. Mm -hmm. There's many things we can do that are relaxing.
Okay, and then the third component is pairing. So what you do is you now do whatever you're good at that relaxes you. You have to really get good at that though. So you do that and you pair it with the first thing on your list. Just look at the picture and you do your relaxation until the picture is meaningless. Then the next day or two days later you go to the next stage and let's say the next thing is okay a picture of the doctor or a video maybe. Mm -hmm. You watch the video of the doctor doing the procedure and now you are doing your relaxation and you're no longer worried. Mm -hmm. The third or fourth day now you're going to maybe even get in the car and drive to the doctor's office but you're not going up. That's all. You just drive to the doctor's office and you're relaxing and or your child is listening to their music and now they're much better. The fourth day, fifth day, it might take a month, doesn't matter. And you just gradually work your way up and you pair each step with the relaxation procedure. So you might have to drive to the doctor's office five times and just sit in the car and listen to music, but you do that until the child is no longer anxious. So essentially we've taught them a coping skill mm -hmm. and then we're gradually letting them try the coping skill out in a way that they can be successful so that we can get it further and further along. Yes, and you pair the coping skill with the stimulus that's so they get causing that anxiety. Yes, exactly. You get the what you're doing is you're classically conditioning each level of the anxiety to neutrality, yeah. to the relaxation, so it's not going to be anxious anymore. Okay. Now, with when we do these techniques with our kids with ASD, you use a lot of visual stimuli. Like I'll give some examples here. Um, a toolbox. So you will teach your adult or child many techniques. One could be breathing, one could be, oh, whenever I feel anxious, I need to listen to music, it helps me. Uh, one could be, I like to draw, drawing calms me down, whatever they are. And you put them in the child's toolbox mm -hmm. and you tr help your child pick. The next time they start to get anxious about something, you say, hey, what's in your toolbox? Mm -hmm. What are your techniques? pull one out and do it right now. You pick. And you can use visual things to help the child to identify what they have. What are their strategies? You can you, you give written schedules. For instance, a lot of times our kids are anxious. This is when parents tell me they hate transitions, mm -hmm. right? So write down their entire schedule. Do you know how much anxiety that reduces for our kids yeah. just knowing what's coming next? Yeah. We just take our kids and we do, come on, we gotta go this, this, yeah. this, this. And the child's like, good Lord, what's happening to my schedule? What's, right. What am I doing And today? we would react badly if somebody did that to us. Oh, everybody, That's what's absolutely. fascinating. I do it all the time, but I, if somebody did that to me, I would freak out. Absolutely. And so it's very important for our kids to actually know what's going on. So transitions are important. Narratives. Narratives are things like you will write, you, oh, like social stories are, is a narrative. Social stories, for instance, you can use, just write narratives like, I am the boss. Anxiety is not the boss. Right. That's it. Something like that for the child, they can write it down on a small piece of paper, like one of those things in cookies, you know, yeah, for sure, put it in their pocket. Yeah. pockets. Whenever they're going somewhere, they pull it out and take a quick look at it and put it back. I'm the boss. Anxiety is not the boss. Just something yeah. as simple as that. Stories. Stories are very helpful where you can tell stories of someone who was worried about something and then they overcame it. You role play, like just role play the whole thing at home of going to a party or going to school. I mean, it sounds silly, but it really helps our yeah. kids. 
choice lists like when you are in an anxious situation what are your choices what are the things you can do it's fine to walk away that's yeah. totally fine so therefore what are you worried about you can walk away from it right you know what are you worried about if you're at a party alone and you can't get away from the noise can you go to the bathroom yeah. maybe it's more and these are appropriate things and hey we do these things haven't you ever like been I, I get anxious because my kids talk to me all at the same time and I've already had 12 hours of work and I'm <laughs> dying and I haven't slept and there's like a million things and I'll just literally go in my closet and stand there for five minutes just to <laughs> breathe and calm down yes. drawings are very useful to our kids like thought bubbles cartoons like helping our we, we do a lot of cartoon comic types comic strips where like you know, our child will, let's say, throw a fit or a tantrum, and then we'll say, okay, let's talk about why this happened. So this is you, and we'll draw a person, and this is the other person, and how are you feeling? And we'll, like, put some for, sort of feeling in, in a bubble next to the heart. Mm -hmm. And what did you do? And then we'll draw something like, oh, so you threw a book, you threw something, or you hit this person. Mm -hmm. And what were you thinking? Mm -hmm. Oh, you were thinking, and we help our kids identify what they were thinking that led to that level of anxiety and reaction or That's you know great. avoidance and then you'll say what other things could you think and then you'll try to replace them with some of these more adaptive coping strategies like oh you could think there is nothing to be afraid of I can always leave I can always I'm going to be successful so reversal of your own negative thoughts you know so really empowering them oh yeah absolutely rule lists of emotions to for coping mm -hmm. you know rules lists of what's normal and what's excessive like keep in mind none of our kids really know how to do these things yeah. they don't really know they don't have a reference point they don't they really don't and I'm just gonna keep going I know we're going over a little yeah. bit but I want to get through just maybe this slide and I've got yeah, a couple the next of slide is the last slide. On. absolutely okay. Now, you, let me just give some more examples. Like, use concepts that are that are interesting. For instance, astronauts exploring a new planet. Mm -hmm. Right? That's a really good example because imagine they like for our kids it feels like they're exploring a new planet yeah. right and if yeah. you show them like look at those astronauts and look what they did and you're exploring so go yeah. and see what's out there and come back and tell me and make that gives yeah. them courage or like there was one one child who had a Harrison Ford obsession like mm -hmm. was completely and the the way that it was the strategy was used to just say what would he do what would Harrison Ford do and whenever we did, drew comic <laughs> strips it was always Star Wars cartoons oh, right? My. or use self-stimulatory behaviors as a way to reward themselves this is called the premac principle where essentially you will allow the individual to for instance um, use the you know line certain things up that don't seem as odd okay. like for instance <clears throat> how many people have Oh, engineers, I love when they have like 10 really sharp pencils in their pocket or <laughs> right. mechanical pencils or something. Or when we have like a pencil case and all of them have to be like sharp. Yeah. Or hey, how many people have really, really organized sock drawers or whatever right. it is? 
hey, allow those things because they're adaptive ways of being obsessive. Right. Okay, and just don't allow the ones that are not. Like, as yeah. I said, organize. Let your child be obsessive in certain arenas, but just not others. Okay. I think the last slide is just talking about, you know, like really take care of the anxiety in yourselves because the more anxious you are, it really does affect our kids as yeah. well. It starts at home. Yeah. As always. And let's see if some of the, there's, I, I do want to tell our parents about one, our viewers about one type of therapy called acceptance commitment therapy. I'm pretty sure Evelyn Gould would have talked about this. Yes. It's a fabulous intervention. It's a fabulous type of treatment. I really recommend it for a lot of people. It helps you cope with anxiety. It helps you cope with fear. It helps you accept things. I know, you know, maybe next show we can get into, Shannon, how just having your child diagnosed with autism causes a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And how we can really help our parents cope with these things. You know, act, uh, I've put in uh, some of the things, some specific treatments. Actually, what we should do is talk about just act in okay. one of, if, has Evelyn done that already? She has, but we, we can, there's always more to talk about. Okay. So, uh, absolutely. I want to get to a couple of these questions, and one of them, it's going to be seemingly off track, but it's a 911 from a parent who's having anxiety right now because okay. their child is about to go in and get tested for diabetes. Uh, and they write in and say, I know gastric issues are common with ASD kids, but is diabetes common? My son is being tested in 30 minutes again for this, and he is only four. Right. Um, I don't know that it's common. I don't have too many kids with diabetes, so it might not be common, but doesn't matter. Get it. You it's know, important to get the test. It's very important to get the test, and don't worry. Don't freak out. It's not a big deal. There are so many children who have diabetes and they handle it and they learn to cope with it and they learn yeah. to self-inject and it's not a, or check their own blood later on in life. He's four. I know. I, I hear your pain. I honestly do. But don't allow, don't, see, this is what I'm saying. This is what happens. We, we become apprehensive about stuff we imagine. Right. You know, maybe it's good for him right now. Maybe later in the future we learn that we all need to watch our insulin levels right. just go with it and if and if it comes back positive it means that he needs some help which w you would do so and this is a good thing know, that you're, exactly yeah, and it's so important to know right. uh, and somebody wants to know it's sort of that chicken or the egg does anxiety cause the stomach issues or is it the other way around oh I love the person who wrote that in that's part of the slide one of the slides that I had to take out because this is so long uh -huh. I always think that myself uh -huh. which one is causing which yeah. very very good point it's the and they perpetuate each other, obviously. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the answer to that is we don't, uh, we know. don't know. We don't and know. And it could be different in different kids, Absolutely. couldn't it? Absolutely. And you know, when you look at kids with autism, if you think about, and I've said this on the show many, many times before, but if you look at, think of kids with autism as, just put yourself in there. That was my Hong Kong experience. Uh -huh. You know, it's kind of like, okay, you have sounds that are too loud, lights that are too intrusive, you're not sleeping well, you have GI issues, you're not comprehending much of what's going on around you. Right. Believe me, you will feel anxious. Yeah. And, and, I, and as you said, that could that doesn't have anything to do with autism necessarily. That could be any kid, any of us. You're having GI Absolutely. issues, you're going to get anxiety. And if you have anxiety, you're probably going to get GI issues. Absolutely, that's right. 
right? You take any typically developing child, uh, fly them to some other part of the world, make sure they have jet lag, and throw yeah. them on, in a school where they don't know how to communicate with anyone. And, the and culture, mess with their diet. Mess with their diet, and their culture is completely different, and believe me, they'll react just the same. Okay, uh, next question. Can children outgrow anxiety or separation anxiety? Is it just being a child and feeling small in the world that can trigger it? Whatever the trigger is, you need to act in order to uh, get them off of se separation anxiety. Separation anxiety is often uh, because we give in uh, very, very, it's, it's, our kids will probably start, so here's how it goes. Uh, that's that slide that I said a lot of times this is something that is instigated just naturally Okay, so of course your child is bonded with mom and dad more than anyone else or mom and someone else, You know caretakers guardians people they feel safe with and now you're putting them in a school environment where they don't know anyone So they're gonna feel unsafe which yeah. will equate to anxiety But you have to go back and you have to do a planned intervention and it's exactly what I said It's the systematic desensitization yeah graduated exposure to the school environment with coping strategies will help your child get over it. And if you don't do that, no, there are people, there are children who have separation anxiety even as at their at the age of 10. Uh, there are adults who have separation yeah. anxiety because nobody ever helped them get through it. Okay, so we shouldn't have an expectation they're just going to work it out on their own. They might, and the only reason they work it out on their own is because they're flooded, they're thrown okay. into the scenario and they realize they're safe. But that isn't necessarily the kindest way to do it. It isn't, and it's not the safe, it's not the guaranteed way that okay. they'll get through it. Uh, we, I, I sort of feel like we've answered this a little bit, but I want to backtrack a little. Does this apply to kids without autism as well? Absolutely. It applies I mean, to all of us. It, it's, it applies to everyone. Every, We all experience anxiety. It's just a matter of whether we have the ability to cope with it at different levels or not. Okay. And, you know, a lot of people, as I said, remember the first slides, a lot of people deal with it in adaptive ways, not adaptive ways, and you know, the, the issue here is to try to teach our kids more uh, useful and adaptive ways to cope. Okay, this next one comes from, I don't know if you remember, the first time I ever had you on a radio show, the first caller that we got, it, it's this person oh, who I've become very good friends with. Wonderful. Uh, but wants to know, they're having lots of problems with OCD type behaviors. The older her son gets, he's now a teenager, the more pronounced they are, and he's had five black eyes self-inflicted in the last three months simply out of frustration because oh. his OCDs are, OCD needs aren't being met. Okay. We, we, this is a very severe situation. Here we go. Is he on any medications? Get him on an SSRI medication, first of all, please. That will help take the edge off him immediately. It will really significantly help. Secondly, allow, start from scratch. Allow him to have all of his OCDs for a while. Okay, start with that. That's your baseline. Start working on teaching him some other techniques, relaxation techniques. Does he know how to meditate? There are very, very good tapes out there. I don't know what his functioning level is. Perhaps you know, Shannon, but there are amazing uh, tapes or okay. DVDs or CDs, even online, 
that you can play that are five minutes, 20 minutes, that they will literally take you into a dream state and they calm you absolutely and they're beautiful and it's visual imagery. Um, maybe that doesn't work for him. Maybe music works for him. Get him some headphones that are noise canceling, put them on and allow him to listen to calming music. Maybe rocking calms him. Teach him something that is calming. When you've identified what that is, do desensitization. Start to talk about the worst thing in his case is his routine not being done, his compulsion not happening. Okay, I don't know what they are. The easiest is one step away from it now. So in other words, his, let's say he has a compulsive behavior of lining up objects. The worst thing that could happen is he's never allowed to line up objects or someone disrupts his objects all the time. Just as an example, mm -hmm. what if the, you start with the lowest being, oh, we disrupt the line, but you can form it again immediately. Okay. And you just make the hierarchy all the way up. This hierarchy will differ based on each individual's actual, actual fears and compulsions. Start gradually teaching him how to cope with change. But wouldn't you say at this point it's important to get some extra help, like you were saying, get some medical help, but also time to get maybe a cognitive behavioral therapist, you know? Definitely. I mean, if you have a child who's now an adolescent and is giving, you know, self-injuring, yeah. He's scared to death. Yes, please get him help. Please get him help. Get him medical help and get get to, together with a, a cognitive psychologist. Okay, great. And our last one, how do we deal with anxiety with adults, not just children on the autism spectrum, young adults that go into transition or higher of higher education and independence sometimes face anxiety with the changes in this transition. We see this as a, a growing field. As more of our kids get better and they go out into the world, they're having anxiety. Any advice for young adults with autism that experience anxiety with these transitions? Absolutely, and we could, I mean, we I'm happy to do another show that just answers questions, but th again, ask yourself, what tools do they have? What's their toolbox consist of? What do they have when they go out there? Do they, do, is it a physical fear or is it a mental fear, right? When my, <clears throat> do they have books they can read that helps them to calm down? Do they know how to meditate? Do they have all their favorite music? Do they have all friends? Do they know how to co connect with you when they need to? What are the tools that you've given them? And just, you know, maybe read the, the information that I'm sending here with, on ACT that mm -hmm. will actually help you teach them ways to reevaluate. Mm -hmm. See, what we do with our fears is we tend to label them mm -hmm. and then that becomes scary. Yeah. But you know, there's a lot of different techniques that help you just calm down. If your child or adolescent is leaving, my daughter just went to college. Yeah. Obviously there's a ton of anxiety involved with it. I think there have been days where I've just finished work and gone straight up to Santa Barbara to spend the weekend with her or just the week, you know, yeah. or a day or two. So you do a graduated thing. She basically doesn't need me anymore right now there but she did at the beginning of the term mm -hmm. so you observe those and don't panic about them and you get help and somebody wrote in and said thank you for this amazing information very helpful and as a parent I feel that I have some clear ideas on what to do with my nine-year-old so thank you I'm very glad and that I, I we have to let you go now we have to uh, because we've kept poor Nancy Allspot Jackson waiting but um, I, I do want to say that when we the next time that we'll be doing ask dr. Doreen is on January 8th so oh, we'll continue you. Well, because the next two right, the next Wednesday, two weeks are, are uh, holidays, um, so but you'll be able to go back and watch this and the first one. 
And when we come back on January 8th, we'll be answering questions. So you can, we'll keep questions and you guys can write in after you've and thought some more and tried some of these things and ask some more questions. And uh, I really want to so wish our uh, viewers a wonderful Christmas yes. or any other holiday that you're celebrating right now. And a happy, happy, happy new year. Happy and new I'm year. really looking forward to 2014 and may um, all of your children continue to do well and flourish and uh, may 2014 be a peaceful and healthy um, and just a wonderful year for everyone. Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. I'm Nancy Oswald-Jackson. And I'm Shannon Penrod, and we're so excited to be here. We're a little bit yeah. late because we ran that longer segment with uh, Dr. Grampshay talking mm -hmm. about anxiety. but well, We all but, need to hear that. But um, we're live right now. So if you, those of you who've been writing in this morning, I want to let you know that we're going to have uh, experts dealing with those questions tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, but Nancy and I are here live. You can be asking us questions right now. We've got a big, exciting show, kind of yes, wall to wall. Some great and guests. Lots, great guests and lots to talk about today. Lots of things in the news. We do. Um, there's a big topic going on right now because I believe this broke yesterday yes. uh, about the couple in Maryland um, who, and I was saying to Shannon, sometimes these headlines tend to be a bit sensational, but yeah. I guess this They're is the fact. Incendiary. Uh, Parents locked men with autism in basement for six years. Police said yeah. this, okay. Um, so the bottom line is they did find 22-year-old uh, sons, boys with autism. Um, they are, that have been, uh, the parents have been accused of locking them inside a basement in their Rockville home. Um, and, you know, as you read on in the story, um, it says that the, the kids had eloped um, I guess they were, yes, they're nonverbal. Mm -hmm. The parents said they require constant attention. And uh, the father said he locked the sons inside the room around 10 p.m., would come back just before 5 to let them out. So they were putting them in there at night, and the father said uh, it's because they would run away and elope, which, as we know, is a huge problem in, in general in our country. So, um, you know, this is being investigated, um, but it once again points to a crisis in our country. Absolutely, um, which we're going to talk about more. Um, I, I just wanted to say that w as we hear these different stories of the lengths, and, and the parents say the same thing each time, you don't understand what I was going through. I think we ha we can relate to feeling like you don't know what to do. Right. I think we can all relate to that. But the issue for me is that the lengths in which families are having to go to and they're uneducated about what might work, right. It really it's like, where where's the line? I was saying to Nancy, you know, it's like the school teacher who decided two years ago, well, I have to to keep safety in the classroom. Right. That's my number one directive, which is why I put this young man, zipped him into a duffel bag. And to her, it was like, well, what else am I supposed to do? And of course, and that's a teacher. And that's a teacher. And and the and but we know parents have gone to, and people have said, well, if you zip them into a hospital bed that has you know mesh, how is that different What's than the locking difference them between into, a couple of grand into a into a bedroom that only has a mattress in it? And what's the difference between putting them in a cage? And I think the point that we need to make to people is that there are better solutions. We just have oh, to hook you up to the people who can help you. And that's not easy. Mm -hmm. But we have to 
the that's the hill we all have to die on. And and I do want to point out too that in this case, because this was the most disturbing part for me, that they the reason why they discovered that the boys were being locked into this quote unquote bedroom in the basement uh, was because the couple has two other sons, one of whom was was arrested the same day that the house was being searched on a, a suspicion of drug issues, uh, and that young man was arrested that same day for robbery and assault in the second degree of a disabled child at a playground. Now, you know, that's being investigated, but right. that's what the he was arrested day. for the and same he, day. And that's a son of the family. This is a family yeah. in huge crisis with yeah. two two adults who right. are on the spectrum. Right. Um, it's it's very disappointing. And the other me. thing that concerned me greatly was that, that the room had no furniture and was urine-soaked. Um, and that's a fact. So, it's just, it's, you know, these are appalling stories. Uh, we have another story related to, I mean, this father claimed that his son was prone to wandering, which yes. we know is very common, very common in autism. And there, uh, last Thursday, a four-year-old child died in Ohio uh, shortly after he was pulled from a body of water. And um, our Alex Colette, um, he was drawn to the water, as so many of our children are. He was pulled after a short time after being reported missing, and our hearts go out to the family in that case. Um, and they were looking for him, and, yes. and, it, and it really brings up for us, um, you know, there are a lot of things going on uh, right now, and we we really got involved in a story on Friday um, that we that we came to quite late, I will say, but I, I want to share with everybody that we've learned a lot in the last couple of days, and we're we going to be sharing it with you in the next couple of weeks of what we've learned, but we want to cover briefly, uh, because these two stories are so depressing, and there's an element that can be taken depressingly in our third story, but it, it, we will tell you there's a happy ending. There's a wonderful ending. Um, the story of Romario Snow, um, who uh, went missing on June 27th. And an autism mom uh, named Wanda Rapp had called me saying, why are none of the autism uh, blogs and websites, you know, and chat rooms and various things, don't? They, why don't they know about this? The child we had didn't. Not, we we didn't, did not know We about did not know. And uh, Romario is 18 with the functioning level of about 10. Mm -hmm. And um, he went missing while he was with his family um, at the corner of, um, I believe it was, uh, it was now I'm Spring getting. Street. Okay. Uh, in, at the 600 block Cesar of. Cesar Chavez and Spring Street? I, be okay. I believe so. And um, at any Angeles. rate, we, in our, to our knowledge, last week he was still missing. Shannon, you quit quickly mobilized a lot of the people in the autism community about this case, and happy ending. He was found by his family, his mother, at a homeless center shelter, and apparently he had been riding around on MTA and had been at various homeless shelters, and from what we hear, may have had some injuries while in, a, in an altercation at a homeless shelter, but he's found. He's, he's safe. Found and he's safe. And, um, we're going to be talking more about this with you, and we're working on some things. We're, Act Today is going to give the family a grant for the, a state-of-the-art tracking device called iLock. Yeah. And um, 
We are talking more about legislation on this issue yes. of children, autism individuals and children and older autism individuals and how we can bring attention to the fact that this is so common and we need to have a better system for tracking them. Absolutely. And alerting and, police and media. Yes, and, and we are going to be giving you more information, but one of the things I want to I want you to know right now is that we spent a lot of time talking to the uh, Missing and Exploited Children organization, and you can go to missingchildren.com. They have lots of information there, and there are tabs that are just for special needs kids. There are forms that you could fill out right now and have somewhere attached to your refrigerator, um, you know, because the truth is, is when our kids go missing is not when we want to fill those forms out. No. Um, but you could have that filled out, you know, get yourself a cup of coffee, sit down, fill it out, and put it on with a magnet on the refrigerator, and it will help to remind you every day to be grateful that your child isn't missing, and heaven forbid that something should happen, you would be that much more prepared. They have a lot of information on their website. We want to encourage people to check that out. Right. But we will, and we are going to have someone from uh, that organization on the show with us. We're talking with them about having a better system to yes. let organizations know uh, when somebody is missing. And, um, you know, we're, we're trying to move. You have been so inspirational to me the last couple of days because I feel like what I did on Friday, I just got in, some, in contact with some people, but you were mobilizing the media and have mobilized yes, we, the media. Yes, NBC is going to be reporting on this story and looking at the need for a better system in the infancy stages as we talk about this, a better system for tracking kids on the spectrum. And, um, you know, it's a happy ending, as we said. Yeah. And but we have to do better. We do. It was a happy ending, you know, by the grace of the universe and God above. Um, but as I, we all looked at this and said, you know, New York did such an amazing, put forth such an amazing effort for Avante, and it wasn't a happy ending. And yeah. Los Angeles, we, I feel very personally that we let this mom down because mm -hmm. we didn't know, we didn't mm -hmm. have a system in we place. Did, so Nancy and I are on the job mm -hmm. with a bunch of other autism moms. Yeah. We're going to change that. We are. It's, so. it's all going to result in positive things yes. as oftentimes these crisis situations this this time with a happy ending we hope to find solutions that's what this that's, is all about solutions. For it. okay okay so Great now guess. we have a guest coming up yes we've got uh jenny palmietto palmietto and she's going to be talking with us about a conference about love and autism this is I, a topic that we all need to spend some more time on when i heard read about this i said we've got to talk to this guest we've yes. got to get her on the show because I, I don't think we spend enough time talking about love and and autism. Yes. And she's a licensed marriage and family therapist, so we're thrilled to have her. We're expecting to have Dr. Jim Ball a little bit later on in the hour. We, we're having some issues where we're not sure because he is on location at the ASA conference. We hope we're going to be able to connect with him and uh, more. So stick with us. Stick with us. This is an online program that provides assessment, curriculum, positive behavior support planning for challenging behavior, and progress tracking, and it does this all in one place. The skills assessment and curriculum addresses eight areas of development, which even includes advanced higher level areas such as executive functions and cognition, which pretty much makes skills the only ABA-based set of curricula for teaching more complex skills, things like problem solving, planning, self-management, perspective taking, and even inferring and predicting others' private events. Skills is a four-step system. 
Step one is to add the child to your account. Step two is to start assessment. The skills assessment is the only ABA-based assessment with psychometric research demonstrating the language subscale to have excellent reliability. Every area of human functioning and typical child development from infancy to adolescence was researched, making the skills assessment the most comprehensive of its kind in the world, and we're quite proud of that. Skills is easy to use. Simply click Start Assessment and begin answering questions. Or simply type in a keyword, find specific activities to assess, and add activities to treatment. Step 3. Choose Activities. Once you've completed the assessment, Skills selects from a pool of 4,000 activities categorized by age, level, and skill type to provide you with exactly those activities each child needs. Start by choosing a curriculum, then a lesson, and finally an activity. Click the information icon to view prerequisites, ages in which targets develop, examples, and IEP goals. Click the video icon to watch a short video. Once you've identified an activity you want to teach, adding activities to treatment is a snap. Step 4. Start treatment. Here you can access customizable activity lesson details, add your own customized targets and exemplars, and edit an activity status such as introducing or mastering it. You can even print handouts such as worksheets, tracking forms, visual aids, and other materials. Skills also offers multiple progress charts, mapping curriculum progress, lesson progress, and cumulative number of activities and targets mastered over time. The Skills Language Curriculum is categorized by verbal behavior type so that users can identify progress for verbal operants, such as echoics, mans, tax, and interverbals. Skills is one of the only programs that provides the ability to write behavior intervention plans, or BIPs, for challenging behavior. With just a few clicks, the outline of the behavior intervention plan is written for you and ready to be printed and implemented. You can learn more about Skills today and get started by visiting us at www.skillsforautism.com or you can call us at 877-975-4559. Skills. Progress starts here. Today we're going to be making homemade glow-in-the-dark bouncy balls. So let's get started. The materials you'll be needing are two mixing bowls, something to stir with, measuring spoons, borax, cornstarch, water, glue, and glow paint and food coloring. So step one, you're going to take one of your measuring bowls and you're going to measure out half a teaspoon of borax four tablespoons of cornstarch, and four tablespoons of water. Then you're going to mix that all together. I'm going to set this aside. In another bowl, I'm going to mix my glue and my glow-in-the-dark paint and any food coloring I want to use to make it a special color. two separate bowls with the mixtures in them. Now I'm going to put them together, letting them sit for the next 15 seconds, and then I'll stir them together. It's important that you let them sit for a moment before stirring so they can do their magical thing. Now that the 15 seconds is over, I'm going to stir together the mixture, making sure to stir thoroughly until I can no longer do it anymore. You'll see what I mean in a second. Now 
Now that I can no longer stir it, I'm going to start rolling around in my hands to make a ball. And voila, very own homemade bouncy ball. Woo! Well, I hope you had fun with this activity today. Until next time, drop down, guys. Can you see me flying by your side? Hello, fellow activists. Today we're going to talk about the 10 steps to empowerment. Step number one, accept and embrace this challenge. By telling you to accept and embrace the challenge, I don't mean you have to love autism. Let's get this straight. I love my child with autism, but I hate that autism stole a big part of his childhood. When I look back at my journey, I realize that I knew in my gut that my son was regressing at the age of two. I had a hard time with acceptance. It didn't come easy for me. My denial may have stemmed from the fact that I didn't want to go through what my own mother had, raising a child with Down syndrome with no support. I even equated my mother's alcoholism with her being stuck at home with a disabled child. I didn't want that life for myself. I couldn't believe that having lived through the experience of having a brother with special needs, I was now faced with having to raise my own child with special needs as well. But being in denial did not make the truth go away. It's when we can accept the truth that it can set us free. Until next time, stay strong and keep the faith. Welcome back to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. And we have as our next guest, Jenny Palmietto. She's the host of Love and Autism, a conference with heart. And she is an LMFT and the owner of the Family Guidance and Therapy Center of Southern California. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you for having me. Well, this, this conference, when I read about it, it sounded so exciting to Shannon uh, and, and to me. Uh, we thought, wow, love is something we could spend a lot more time on in general, uh, but particularly for those on the spectrum. And I want to just start with the conference. Tell us what it's about. It's at, uh, at, first of all, it's at San Diego State University on August yeah. 23rd and 24th. And mm -hmm. tell us what the conference is focusing on, Jenny. Sure. Um, so this conference is really a 360 view on love and relationships as they pertain to those on the spectrum and their families and loved ones. Um, you know, one of the things that I've recognized as a professional is um, that there isn't enough attention on relationships. The relationships, you know, are with us from the cradle to the grave. And uh, so I wanted to put together a conference that um, had thought leaders from on the spectrum and uh, neurotypical thought leaders. Uh, Are we having an issue? No. No, we've got you. We've got you. Okay, perfect. Sorry. Can you hear us? I can't. Great. Yeah. You're no. back. 
Wonderful. Okay. Okay. So, uh, you know, Jenny, I want to take just a second to talk about our, our teens and young adults. Um, if, if there is somebody who's uh, a teenager or a young adult on the spectrum, is this a great conference for them to come to as well? And what kind of information will be available for them? Because we get questions a lot mm -hmm. from young people mm -hmm. writing into us saying that this is a big part of their life and that feels like a big mystery. They don't know how to meet mm -hmm. and, and connect with people in a meaningful way and it's something they desperately desperately want absolutely so we have actually identified um, some of the speakers that would be really appropriate and informational and inspiring even uh, for uh, teens and uh, young adults on the spectrum uh, some of the topics um, when we're talking about the mother-child relationship may not be all that interesting uh, and so I'm um, when a teen or adult is interested in coming to the conference, I identify the speakers that um, they should attend, attend or could attend. And then we have a um, break room available for uh, people to go to if they're not as interested in one of the speakers. Uh, but I think that Paul Loden is going to offer something really special to individuals on the spectrum. He's a uh, young man that uh, identifies as autistic, and he's going to be talking about how the culture um, and the media um, related to love of being um, homegrown on romantic comedies doesn't necessarily work for those on the spectrum. And how to deconstruct uh, the media and what is really actually necessary to have the relationship that people desire. Well, I, I know that there'll be a lot of people who are interested in that. But for Nancy and I, we've got we've got young men that are about they're tweens. Yeah, they're about tweens. to be teens. Well, mine's one year older. Wyatt is twelve. He's going to be thirteen in November. Um, Jem is eleven. And they're starting to be, you know, a recognition. Well, not so much. My son tends to be the one that the girls are starting to follow uh -huh. behind, uh, especially other you know other girls on the spectrum. And then neurotypical right. girls tend to want to take care of him. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's it's kind of a delicate a weird, time for us. It is us. a delicate time, and I know I right. always want to Absolutely. couch things in a way that's productive and doesn't scare him. Um, but it's you know they're still in that boyish phase where they're all mm -hmm. arms and legs and all huggy yeah. and stuff. But uh, it's a rough time. So I'd love to. Is there information for? for us when we have the, that funky right. teenager. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think that uh, actually the talk that I'm going to be doing about uh, we moments, and um, that's just my um, non-clinical term for intersubjectivity, and how to really allow uh, help your child um, relate in their, their most connected way um, through daily practice with you, and that that ends up transferring to um, the other more challenging, um, less familiar relationships, as well as how parents can um, get through some of the sticky spots of the teenage years, the moodiness, when they want to talk about something tender, vulnerable, uh, and that it's hard to, um, to get uh, to that without being super directive or, you know, just telling them how to do something, um, kind of a discovery um, how to help your children discover what they need to know about relationships rather than kind of the cram down your throat. That. And yeah. it's and the, the, the topic is love, but I but I'm guessing that we're talking a little bit about sex as well. 
You know, uh, I think that Lindsay Nebaker and David Hamrick may uh, get into more of the intimate details of their relationship. Um, and they're a couple who is living together. Both of them identify on the spectrum. And that um, love, dating, and unconditional love are something that can and do happen with people on the spectrum. Yes. And that does include things like kissing, hugging, and sex. There yeah. we go. Well, I, you know, this is fascinating. Is there a chance that you might expand this conference to beyond San Diego to other cities? You know, I toy with all kinds of ideas. Uh, <laughs> so I, I will do this conference again, and I think we will uh, expand to, um, to include more people talking about sexual abuse, uh, sex, the teenagers and all these other things that we weren't able to address in this particular conference. Um, I I kind of created this first version of Love and Autism for um, as my beginner conference in some way. I wanted to um, just uh, collect individuals that I felt really inspired to hear their messages, and um, I've been really excited by it. So I think we'll, we will do it again and um, and do this invitation only conference. Well, I think it's a great idea. Yeah, How do I we noticed, find out more? I'm sorry, Shannon. Okay. I, was, uh, I noticed that most of the speakers, uh, a lot of them at any rate, do have books. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, um, yeah, now to Shannon's question. Well, I, I, I want to know how can people find out more about the conference and how can people attend and what, where do they find out how to sure. do that? Yeah, um, our website, loveandautism.com, has all the information. We are um, we have a few different coupon codes going on right now, so uh, people can get there and save a little money. Um, Love ASD gives you 20% uh, off. Love ASD is all in caps. And we also have a um, buy one, get one, 50% um, off uh, discount code, and that is Love Summer, all in caps as well. So those are two offers that we'd love to extend to you guys. And um, uh, we also, for those that are regional center um, consumers, many regional centers are funding this conference. We are a vendor um, to provide um, this to our regional center consumers. And they can email us um, to find the instructions about how to request the funding from their service coordinator uh, and get our vendor code. And we also have a coupon code that really will allow many um, regional center consumers to come for um, free with their regional center funding. Okay, so this is in San Diego, but what is the date again? It's the 23rd and 24th of August, so okay. about one month away. From right. 8 in the morning till 6 p.m. And we wish you the best of luck with this, Jenny. Thank it's you. a really, really important topic. Great idea that you had. It sounds fascinating. I hope that it's a great success and that you can expand this in some way to other cities. Yes. Uh, good luck. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you, Take Jenny. Take care. Okay, guys. All right, bye-bye. Uh, really remarkable topic. I, I mean, love this topic. Know, this is, I just find this something fascinating. We more, more information fascinating. About. And I'm in. I'm reading, which is very short read. Why I jump. Yes. You were and about this the other yes. Day. And I think it's simply remarkable. And I wish I could remember the, how to pronounce the young man's name who wrote it. He had help. Uh, was assisted in writing it. But a nonverbal uh, young man with autism from Japan. And uh, the most 
intriguing book I've read since Temple's uh, latest book about changing how I look at my son. Love it. So well, anyway, it and it has a lot to do with the need for relationships and love. He a, he answers that question thing. in a way that is so simple yet so profound. And yeah. this is such. I mean, you and I we are need really to talk getting about into this. this. And and you know, on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, having relationships. <sighs> is right up there at the very Nestle. top. Let's get you quoting, girl. <laughs> well, I mean, but you know, that's you the just, thing. With, that's very academic. I'm very no, impressed. In, well, no, in marketing, <laughs> they talk about this all the time because you have the hierarchy of yes. what you need and yes. we need to have food, water, and shelter, and, and... happiness is another desire that humans, all humans and, have, and, and animals don't necessarily have. And people have. tend to think that, you know, individuals with autism maybe don't have those same needs. Oh. It's, it's a, that's a mistake. Myth, they are myth, right myth. Yeah, They myth. need to be happy. They need to be loved. Yes. Like every human being. This That's is a absolutely. quintessential right and desire. That's right. So, and so more, something we'll be talking about more. great topic. Well, we're going to take a break and then we're going to come back with Dr. Jim Ball. I'm very excited to be talking Me with too. him. He is the chairman of the board for the ASA, the Autism Society of America. As you know, all this week we've been featuring people who are at their conference and he is there and going to be joining us in just a few minutes. So stick with us. you find out you're having a boy you always think like oh he's gonna play football he's gonna do this and that and then when he's diagnosed all those things get washed away it's like that piece that's always in the back of your mind you know where is he what is he doing is he safe we really didn't know what we were dealing with I wish that they could have directed me a little bit more and provided me some information I was a young mom I didn't know what it was like to raise a boy despite a boy with autism Hundreds of thousands of families are not getting the help they need for their children with autism all around the country. ACT Today is determined to bridge the gap. These families really have to go through a lot to get a grant. The application process isn't easy. The records, the diagnosis proof, they're really battling for their kids. So when we can give them a grant, it is so wonderful to see that they succeed in getting that help for their children. Our founder, Dr. Doreen Grampache, is an amazing woman, and she is one of the world's foremost authority on behavior of children with autism. She's extremely knowledgeable, and she oversees every single grant we give. She is part of that process. People may think of autism care and treatment as simply schooling or therapy, but you know, we provide important safety supports, things like fencing, for example. The whole family's living in fear of that child running out into traffic. I recently delivered an iPad to a little boy with some of the apps that are out there for children with autism. Miracles happen. I got the iPad from ACT. From ACT, What yeah. did it say? Can you repeat that, Dustin? I got the iPad from that. We have helped so many military families. And when I think of these brave families that are fighting two battles, one to protect our country and one for the right treatment and care for their children, it, it breaks my heart. And I think we have to do more as a nation to help them. There's not a day that doesn't go by that we don't think about it. Some people say, oh, he's normal. You don't see the battles that I see every single day. My husband does have to deploy, and when they get on that bus, that might be the last time that my kids ever see them. So I called, and then they informed me that he had received the grant, which was like a blessing from above. 
I was just like speechless. I just started to cry because, you know, without it, we would, we would have been lost. The AT grant was a total miracle, and without that, they wouldn't be able to receive a service dog. So we're so appreciative of what they've done for us as a family. Recently, Act Today funded a program for military children with autism in San Diego, the Inclusion Films program, which is run by Joey Travolta, and teaches uh, kids on the autism spectrum literal filmmaking skills. They learn how to make a movie. Are we ready? There you go, got it. Okay. Everything that goes into the process of making a film goes into everyday life. So they're learning life skills, they're learning to collaborate. It was really nice to know how much they were enjoying this camp. And they're with people who are supporting them and are making them feel great about themselves and their differences and their similarities. And I get two kids that are working together and apart and together and apart. So it's an interrelationship as well as a camp and a learning experience. It's so fulfilling when I get letters. One stands out for me, a, a boy who was 14 with Asperger's, and we gave him a grant to go to a drama camp. He wrote to us and said, Dear Act Today, thank you for letting me belong for the first time in my life. These kids are remarkable. You know, we underestimate them. They're so knowledgeable, they're so capable, and we can change the life of a family, which means changing the life of a community. Welcome back to Let's Talk Autism with Shannon and Nancy. And we are waiting for Dr. Jim Ball to join us via Skype, and he may be coming through any second. We just But until that, then, we've got a couple of news stories that we for want you. to talk about. Yes. yes. Now, Shannon, uh, Obama has officially signed into law the limiting sheltered workshop eligibility. And I know you had concerns about that. You want to talk yeah. about? We talked about this last week that, you know, what the, I think what the purpose of this law is supposed to do is to help to ensure that the best possible chance for having a vocation happens for individuals who have special needs. That that's, I think is the goal. That's the goal. And to not put them in a position where we just shove them into a place where they get less than minimum wage. And mm -hmm. I honor that goal. I have concerns about how that will actually be implemented. And I hope and pray that it works the way in, in which they want it to work. But you know how so many of these things go awry. Yes. Uh, that right now there are individuals who have a work situation where they get less than minimum wage, yes. but it is very fulfilling for them and it allows them to add uh, to their self-esteem and to the family income. And some of that will be taken away as they have to go through a lengthier process to be able to qualify for that. So we hope that the people who who are going to administer this and be looking at it are people who are mindful of what that will do to the individual. That's what I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for as well. Um, and then a story that uh, had jumped out at me because um, medical records find evidence leaking aut linking autism to obesity is because I'm starting to see more and more obese teens and young adults with autism and um, it seems like in many cases there's either a very thin child 
or a child that's prone more yeah. to obesity. It's the rare that we see the, the, you know, just somebody who looks like they've figured it out and it's exactly Really? Yeah. And yeah. my son Wyatt was extremely thin uh, between the ages of uh, two and five because all he ate was uh, potato chips. You know, I remember one weekend going through the entire weekend with him only eating bomba snacks and potato chips, okay? And I was terrified. But he was like this thin. Yeah. And then when we started, when he started eating, and he is on a GFCF diet, he started rapidly gaining, even though we really limited carbs and dairy, which he, well, we don't have any carbs and dairy, but we have replacement foods right. for those. Right, And, uh, or gluten. Yeah. Uh, we let him have carbs, but right. of course, but right. uh, potatoes and rice and things like that. Yeah. But Wyatt has had a tendency to slowly gain weight over these last three years. Yeah. And he's going to be 13 this year. We have him on a fitness regimen. He's running with mom. Uh, but he would not go to a carrot, okay? Yeah. Uh, that's not his choice in food. So we're working on nutrition. This concerns me greatly. And it says it points to a need for diet and exercise programs and to make those part of behavior programs, okay? Because it's very important to obviously have our kids trained to eat foods that they may have sensory issues with as well. Absolutely. And I, you know, I've shared before on the show that my son eats vegetables and that there's never been an issue, but now he's 11 and Lucky. it's all, of, well, it's an issue all of a sudden. Mm. It is because he would rather eat French fries than eat a carrot. He will eat a carrot if it's the only thing I give him, but his okay. preference and you know, I'm in those preteen years. So, you know, he'll put on a little weight and then he'll thin out and he'll put on a little weight. But I have concerns about that because obviously I'm somebody who has issues with that and I'm not the only person and in my family, you know, we have, we have a, we lean towards that direction, <laughs> shall we say. So uh, my first response when I saw this was, okay, one in every three children uh, is with autism is overweight. And I wanted to know what's the national average for people who aren't on the spectrum. But they do go on to say that uh, they're 2.2 times more likely to be overweight and 4.8 times more likely to be obese if they're on the autism spectrum. That's so that's not significant. Acceptable. It's not acceptable. And we need to start and thinking about how to change this and this is maybe something with the first lady's big get fit let's you know bring it to her attention okay great so uh emily do you want to take a break i understand we have okay we're going to take uh dr ball live he's joining us great. via skype dr ball we're so thrilled to have you joining us dr ball are you there we are so thrilled we're live now with you on the show thrilled to have you this morning well, thank you for having all of us from the Autism Society uh, this week on your show. Okay. So we appreciate it. Well, we're thrilled. We know that you got an amazing conference. I didn't get a chance to do an intro, so let me talk a little bit about who you are. You okay. Are, you are a board-certified behavior analyst that's been working in the private sector field of autism for 25-plus years. You're a featured author and on the advisory board of the Autism Asperger Digest magazine. You were the uh, your 2008 triple award-winning book, Early in intervention in autism real life questions real life answers is amazing and out there and people should be getting that 
You are the chairman of the board uh, for the Autism Society of America. So this conference is very near and dear to your heart. And you are also on the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee that IACC, uh, you were appointed to that in 2012. So that's pretty impressive. <laughs> Beyond that, you have Take a, breath. <laughs> yeah, you have a host of awards that you have won um, in, in the field of autism and been recognized for your work in the field of autism. So we're delighted to have you, first of all. And, and we want to talk a little bit about this amazing conference that right. you have helped put together that's going on right now in Indianapolis. We've already yep. had some amazing guests yesterday from this conference. But we want to know from you, what are some of the exciting things that are happening this year that you want folks at home to know about? I think the biggest thing is um, from our feedback that we got in the Pittsburgh conference last year, a lot of people wanted more networking opportunities. So this year we've tried to make very um, small breakout sessions for people to get together and just chat about what's going on in the field of autism. Uh, our panel of professional advisors, which is a group um, of individuals who are professionals in the field um, who give guidance to the uh, board of directors based on things that are going on in the field have also uh, agreed to do breakout sessions uh, with one-on-one -on -one with our families with individuals so if they have specific questions uh, and we tailor-made that to specific areas like adult services the school-aged you know early intervention so we were really trying to uh, hit hard that networking piece this year I love that because, you know, we, we know that this is not a one-size-fits-all in any way, shape, or form, autism, and it sounds like you're coming to this conference and you're really tailoring it to your individual needs. Last year, um, and I'll give all the credit to the Autism Society of America staff, Scott Badish and his crew, who's our president and CEO, um, did a very good uh, job last year of making sure that they got as much feedback from the participants as possible. Uh, and Richard Wolf uh, was our um, I guess master of ceremonies last year and he went and talked to all the participants to again get why do you come to the conference what are you looking for what do you need um, and we really based this conference on all of the evaluations that we got last year. What have you learned from parents participating in these conferences? Uh, we're unique in the fact that for a vast majority of our affiliates, which we have 106 throughout the country, um, they are parents of people on the spectrum, but they're also professionals. Um, so they wear two hats. So for the first part of the conference, they're here to do the work of their affiliates. So if they're from Illinois, if they're from Indiana, if they're from New Jersey, they're here to gain information on how to bring it back to provide resources in their own communities. So the first couple of days, they wear that hat. The next couple of days, they wear the hat of a parent. Um, so they're trying to gain as much information about their individual children. So our families, you know, are always trying to figure out more information and trying to get more resources for their kids on top of providing those resources for the community right well we, we can relate to that too I mean yes. we're always going to things and we we feel that I think so many people in the community feel that need to pay it forward to get yep. information to other people because we know we got it from other people so right. I 
love that your conference finds a way to marry those two things together for them to get that information and then be the individual too and find time to be the parent because we're always saying that we need to find more time for each thing it's yes, hard to it's juggle. a juggling act it's it a is. juggling yeah. act yeah um, one, of, one of the highlights if i can one of the highlights uh, for me for this conference is um and it's going on right now today on wednesday but we run a pre-conference for individuals on the spectrum who are looking for self-advocate skills mm -hmm. um, and we have people like dina gasner um, and dr stephen shore who run those sessions so it's run by people on the spectrum for people on the spectrum in how to um, understand that really difficult world of self-advocacy and when do you disclose and when don't you disclose uh, and i think that's a unique part of our conference this year we're going to have over 50 individuals on the spectrum participating uh, with us uh, as we do every year uh, and last year for the first time we were able to offer free registration to all people on the spectrum to come to the conference uh, and when i was you know uh, scott and i uh, again the president and ceo scott baddish when we were walking around last year an individual uh, a professional came up and said to us they said you know listen i have to leave today and i think it was thursday so they'd only been at the conference two days they said because i have to get back and i hadn't planned on staying here the entire time um but i would just want to tell you that you know coming here i've never been at a conference and i've been at many autism conferences that really had a sense of community uh and i think that's one of the unique characteristics of our conference Okay. Uh, Nancy's having, uh, Nancy issues. had a question, but she's having issues <laughs> that she wasn't able me? to hear you. So she has a question for you that I'm okay. going to ask. We want to know, can people still register to come? Is it too late or could they, can they uh, walk up? We take walk-ups all the time. And what's exciting for us is uh, tomorrow our keynote's going to be Temple Grandin. And you're uh, introducing her, correct? Yes, I am. Uh, actually, I was in um, Des Moines, uh, Iowa with her last week. Um, and she's very excited. She She's a emeritus member of our board of directors uh, and also on our panel of professional advisors and, and has been a really strong advocate for the Autism Society for a great many years. Yes, well, we love Temple. Please give her our love. And uh, I, I know she's going to deliver a great speech. And, and if that's all you had, it would be an amazing conference. But I know we had Lars Perner on yesterday. Yep. And we had... Um, Mark Custer, as I wasn't here yesterday. I know, but I'm, I'm having trouble. I'm having a senior moment about <laughs> names. Yeah. Um, but you're, you've got an amazing, amazing lineup. Um, we think it's an incredible conference, and we want to encourage people to go to autism dash society.org to find out more about this conference and to be able to find out how they can walk up. Will that that uh, website take them to that? Absolutely, and we're at the uh, Indianapolis Convention Center okay, right down great. there. Great. Now, I have one final question yes. for Dr. Ball, um, and it's about uh, the future and hope. Uh, as a member of the IACC, Dr. Ball, is there a national vision for what needs to happen next in the field of autism, and can you share it with us? Can you give us some hope? The biggest thing, which is also going to be part of uh, the Autism Society's strategic plan, because we're embarking on our new strategic plan for the next five to ten years within the next couple months. Um, and if you look at 
the IAC, you know, which is the Interagency Autism Coordinating Committee, it looks at the research and tries to uh, target gaps in that research so that we can fund the appropriate research to get things on the ground to people so they have the resources to make a better quality of life for their individuals, you know, with an autism spectrum disorder. And at this point, um, people are finally realizing that these little people grow up and become big people. Uh, and that in this country, we have not put the appropriate resources and or really had a long thought out plan on how to really attack adult services. And even at the IAC, uh, with the Autism Society and uh, uh, several other, you know, groups that we're coordinating and working with, our focus is going to be on that topic, which I think is a great hope for all of our individuals. Great. Well, good luck with that effort, that. and we look forward to hearing more. And and we look forward to tomorrow. We're going to have some more guests from the conference, and we're already making plans to join you next year in Denver for in your Denver, conference. Denver, yeah. Yes, we're looking forward to that, but we know you're just getting started with this wonderful conference this year, and we're chartreuse with envy that we're not there, but we want to wish all of you the best possible conference, that you have a wonderful time. Well, we appreciate that, and we thank you guys for uh, for endorsing us and letting us have this opportunity to talk to your uh, to your people. Well, we thank think you. what you're doing is important. It's our so pleasure. Thank you. Good All luck. right, give everybody there our our hope and best wishes and love. I will. Thank All you. Right, take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Uh, we're we're close to the end of the show yes, here, but I think um, you know this conference is really remarkable an opportunity, and we're already talking making things move we just didn't have enough time this year we to couldn't be able to get go. ourselves there this this year because we had so much going on yep. with our schedules this summer uh but, but we next hope year next denver. year denver i love denver I, I went to graduate school in denver oh you so did okay i did I, all right denver well next year and we encourage all of you uh in the indianapolis area or maybe if you, you gotta go or if it's a short hop skip and a jump for you from somewhere else you know this is where I always find that a conference like this can be life-changing. Absolutely. I, I find that every now and then I get, I hit a plateau. Yep. And, you know, this is true in life and particularly in life with autism. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard the expression, two steps forward, one step back. We hit plateaus, our kids hit plateaus. We have regressions, we have great progress. And sometimes you can go to a conference like this and it can be life-changing. A conference that I attended, a Dan conference, when my son was just under the age of four is what changed my life. Uh, I met Dr. Doreen Grandpache, I heard Dr. Andrew Levinson, and I was given hope and everything changed for me. Yeah. So I want parents to hear that it's worth venturing out to these kinds of conferences. It's worth, you know, if you can make it, doing this for yourself and for your family because you never know what speech, what presentation, what person you'll meet sitting next yeah. to you that can change the life of your family and your child for the better. And I guarantee you'll have at least one moment where you go, this is why I needed to be here. It Absolutely. really is remarkable. Now, I will say to you that early on, you know, I couldn't get to these conferences. There was just no way that I could do it. Right. Even now, it's hard for me. It's I'm going to be honest with everybody. Very hard um, for me. But. Um, you know, so we try to fill in that gap for those of you who absolutely can't make it there to give you a sense of that feeling of there is just something that happens when you have that moment when you realize, okay, I'm not the only person in the room that's dealing 
the other people in this room get this? Yeah, we're part of an autism nation. Uh, we belong to a wonderful group of parents that are going through the same things. You know, each of us can share our experiences. It, and it sometimes you don't even have to share because no. everybody gets it. They do. And the feeling that you get when you have that moment is priceless. Yeah. Uh, it, it helps for all those moments when you're talking to your girlfriends who have neurotypical kids and you say something or they say something and you go, oh, yeah. they don't get it. And I don't want them to get it, but they don't get it. Um, it gets you through all of those moments. It's like an injection of, uh, kind of makes you... It's support. Yeah, it's yeah that's exactly support. what it is. It's wonderful. It's a it wonderful is. thing. It's wonderful when you have that. Okay, so uh, keeping in mind that you can still go, make sure you go to autism-society.org. I will tell you that tomorrow we are going to have uh, wonderful guests on. We're having Jason Cherry, who is a race car driver who is doing things to benefit Autism Society. So he's going to be speaking That's to so us great. from the conference. But we're also going to have Dr. Jonathan Tarbox and Dr. Adele Nadowski. You guys wrote in a bunch of questions overnight. And we're going to be having them, those two wonderful BCBAs answer those questions. So we will get to your questions. I'm sorry that we're I just met with Dr. Tomorrow. Jonathan on an issue we were having with Wyatt, and his counsel was just so greatly appreciated. He's amazing. They're both amazing. So so uh, we will have that opportunity, and we've got a really exciting show for you next week, and we're going to be talking more about those safety issues that we really A lot more about need. that and about changes that we feel we need to make um, in the autism community and when it comes to alerting the uh, police and media. Education. Uh, yeah. It all comes down to that, and it starts with us, right? And then we need to spread it out from us. Mm -hmm. So all of that uh, next week, but don't forget tomorrow, Dr. Jonathan Tarbox, Dr. Adele Nadowski, we're out of time. So uh, I will see you tomorrow. Until then, please give your kiddos a hug from me. And give yourselves a hug from me. Bye-bye.